And yeah. for those who do have those dual diagnoses out there, which I'm pretty sure, honestly, in my personal opinion, I feel like you can't have one without the other. Whether yeah. it came the you know whether the chicken came first or the egg came first, yeah, I think we all end up with a dual diagnosis by the time we we enter our treatment. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Diary of a Former Addict. I am your host, Alan, and I'm your host, Annie. And today we are talking about. Annie, you can give the topic. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about dual diagnosis and the comorbidities of mental health disorders with substance abuse and recovery. I know a lot of our (laughs) listeners are super, super smart. They probably get the gist of it. The word comorbidity just means that it occurs at the same time. And it's it's like a, a word that they use in the science world for things that occur at the same time. Um... More often than not. So. Okay. So good. Because for me, I was thinking comorbid. I'm like, wow, Annie, this is like a really heavy topic. I know it's almost Halloween, but like maybe we shouldn't be talking about morbidity <laughs> of <laughs> addicts. But so it's it just, explained, I get it. <laughs> yeah. So it's a disease or a medical con- condition that is simultaneously present with another one in, another, in a patient, basically. Okay. So you have two more diseases at the same time, and it's, it's something that occurs often, these two things together. So the big one um, for most people who are in recovery or even during active use is depression. Studies suggest that about six to 10 people with mental health disorders, they also struggle with substance abuse. In some cases, uh, addiction develops as a result of self-medicating because you don't want to have those feelings, you don't want to have those emotions. And sometimes it happens, those, those uh, mental health disorders happen because of the use of the substance. Either way, when they both develop, they both need treated. What you're saying is that this, this really is kind of like a, um, what came first, the chicken or the egg type of situation? You know, those who are depressed can, can pick up substance use and those who maybe aren't depressed but start using will develop depression yes. as their use continues. Okay. Yeah. I think that's I think that's very I mean, I hey, I think is it how do I want to put this? Do you think it's impossible to have just one or the other? Or do you think it's one of those things where they just happen to go coexist? Do you know what I mean? I don't I don't think it's impossible to just have one or the other because many people who have chronic depression or like bipolar depression, they don't get they don't self-medicate right but I mean okay this is going into a gray area now okay (laughs) very gray area is not necessarily because you have a mental health disorder will you become a substance use abuser however that's where I was gonna kind of get to you are in the substance use disorder category become depressed have anxiety because of the effect that the drug has on your brain Right. So I'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. 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 Oh, okay. But when both exist together, it's really important important that you have treatment at the same time. And some people will argue that you need to treat the substance use disorder before the mental health piece of it. I totally disagree. Most people would. That's why you're seeing more and more um, places popping up that are dual diagnosis rehab. Yeah. I, I definitely, um, I don't foresee how you could treat one without the other, honestly, because in my own experience being in treatment, I mean, that whole first week, it was just like, 
battling the depression, the boredom and the anxiety. Yes. Not even really thinking about the drug use itself, but just figuring out how to deal with those feelings. Yes. Um, yes. And had I not had counselors like right from day one who, you know, understood what was happening, it, it would have been a different situation. And honestly, it wasn't the past last in the first two rehabs I went to before I even saw a counselor. You know, it yeah. was days before I saw a counselor. It's the first one. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know? And this is a problem too, you know, because not enough people are on board with this dual diagnosis approach. I mean, we talk right. about in substance use disorder counseling that we need to approach the person as a whole. It used to be just approaching the actual um, addiction that you had. Right. And it- now every place needs to do what's called a biopsychosocial when they okay. intake the person and they're actually asking them about how is your childhood? Um, did you have people in your family that were substance use disorder, you know? Yes, people? I do remember that in my intake. I had to do that um, a couple times, I think. And you also <laughs> ask, is there any mental health history in your family? Do you have any mental health history? And we're asking those questions so that we are able to write treatment plans that are relevant for the person that we're working with. So right. if you're going to ask all those questions and then just slap a whole bunch of stuff in their treatment plan about um, what does addiction mean to you? And, you know, like the generic stuff that you get, like basically what I just said, like what does addiction right. mean to you? How is your And those are good things to answer and to know. But if the person comes to you with a significant amount of depression, you want to start working on self-love, self-worth, working through guilt and shame, working through that depression, understanding where it comes from. And that you know, how do diagnosis is like so, so important. And I, I mean, honestly, it's only my opinion, but I really feel like every rehab should be dual diagnosis. There should be a psychiatrist on board and, you know, psychiatric nurses that understand the comorbidity of the two. I'll say like for, I, I know because of COVID, the treatment center I went to before, they did have a doctor, a, a psychiatrist that would come on site. But mm-hmm. since COVID, it was um, Zoom meetings. But it was really the counselors who did a lot of the work. Yes. You know, my, my counselor in particular, he did a lot of the legwork for me and helping me understand my addiction and helping me understand why I go from like zero to 80 in a matter of seconds. Yeah. Um, and that was all part of that pre-treatment plan that um, you were talking about, that, that sort of intake questionnaire that I had to do. But mm-hmm. then there was also my one-on-one with him the first day or second day I was there I believe it was uh, I got to sit down with him and we did a one-on-one treatment plan and that's whenever we went over those those second round of questions that you were you were kind of asking like do you understand this blah 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 or or what does addiction mean to you so Mm -hmm. like I really got both and do you feel that helped oh I think it did I think I think being able to look at what being able to look at my life and saying what does addiction mean to you or what does it look like to you? I can look back and say, this is where it started. This is where I see now that I got out of control with it. This is where I know now that I'm an addict and I can't, you know, that my life became unmanageable. Then from the psychological standpoint of it, we were able then to go back to like, okay, well, what caused you to pick up the first drug? Right. Uh, and not then we so went important. back and we looked back. Yeah. Now we look, then we go like back further and figure out where those traumas are that led to those Trauma's huge. Yeah. Trauma is like one of those things that's like, listen, I still don't even know all the trauma that's happened in my life. Like I'll wake up and I'm like, oh, 
I didn't realize that happened. I didn't realize that that was a trigger or I didn't, you know, it's just mm-hmm. crazy what we uncover when we start to allow ourselves to uncover it. Yeah. Uh, one of the big coping mechanisms of trauma is actually your brain will protect you from remembering those things at times. I, and I knew that. And I think a lot of us out there know, know that the brain's um, capabilities of, of masking situations that were too painful. Um, your brain can literally help you through those things by disassociating with reality. And I've seen it. You know, people just they're walking around with a smile on their face while in recovery and just acting like everything's fine and feeling those feelings is so, so hard. So they'd rather show this outward incongruent feeling of happiness and positivity than actually show how they're really feeling inside. Hi, were you in treatment with me? Did you see what I used to do? (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I was just, I did that. I mean, I mask, I mask a lot of my trauma and my pain with humor. Yes. And that's how I have dealt. And so in situations that were meant to be serious, I would make a joke because I didn't want to reveal the real pain. Now, that being said, the day that I actually let go and decided to feel the feelings and feel the pain, I hated it. <laughs> but... I felt better and my humor got a lot better afterwards. I'm just saying my stand-up is golden right now. (laughs) I'm sorry. I still have brain fog. So like my brain is like all over the place. You're making um, it's really, really important when you have a dual diagnosis that you get treatment designed to address both of them um, concurrently together. Uh, Depression is often accompanied by those feelings of shame and guilt Mm -hmm. and um those also lead to some really dark moments where people often will feel like they need to harm themselves and suicidal thoughts happen too um that's a really important thing to address it's also something you address in early recovery when you get into a rehab um are you feeling that way have you felt that way have you um tried to do that to yourself how and it's a really difficult thing to, to talk about and also ask as a counselor, but so, it's Annie, super important. I have questions for you then. When dealing with patients who are in detox, we know, we know that the brain is is fighting for survival when a, when a person is detoxing because it's trying to, you know, mm-hmm. I, the body is adjusting and readjusting and the brain's protecting itself. And it's very hard in those, those days to be able to come up with this dual diagnosis. So then at that point, it kind of reminds me of, you, you know, in Rocky Horror Picture Show at the end of um, Frank and Fair's first song when he says, so I'll remove the cause, but not the yep. symptoms. Yeah. So is that one of those cases where they know that it's a dual diagnosis, but they have to focus on removing the cause? Yes. First. So in detox, that is what that's about. You're removing, okay. you're removing the toxicity, basically, that's biomedical. And okay. you can't determine in that time period whether somebody is actually acutely depressed or anxious. I mean, they might have been treated for it before, but you know as well as I do when you're withdrawing from some some substances, anxiety is so bad. Mm-hmm. Like your whole body's shaking, you're sweating. Oh, yeah. Sadness. You run. It, yeah. And there's no control of your impulses when you brought that up, like I think about some clients that I've seen that are just like, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. Their brain is so wired on the fact that it needs that substance to stop feeling those feelings. 
that they have well, no control over that. And, and that goes, working with that takes so much patience and understanding. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to, to our, our thing about last week with the, um, the one podcast where the gentleman said, the brain is designed to do. That's it. Yeah. It's designed yeah. to do the action. Yeah. And so in those early days of recovery, it's very hard in treatment to get the brain to understand that it does not have to do the action, that the body will survive without it. Which why it, it, that's why it's so important that there are counselors available that are talking with you and actually mm-hmm. helping you understand why you're feeling that way. And you have to be blunt. You have to be forthright. You can't just say, okay, then leave. Because, right. I mean, you're there to save that person. <laughs> really. Right. Like, when you work in drug and alcohol counseling, you're saving lives. Or you're not saving lives. It depends on how you approach the person and how you treat them. And it's very delicate. It is. And I think it's hard, too, because this goes back to kind of stigma. Back whenever we were talking about the medical professionals and... And what's nice, though, is in treatment centers, they have a better understanding, though, of, of the addict and how the addict mind kind of works. They should hopefully. anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, hopefully. Um, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but I'm going to say where I went to treatment because I loved where I went to treatment. And if it can help one person out there, please look them up. But mm. I went to a place called Bradford Recovery Center in the mountains of Pennsylvania in <laughs> central PA. And I tell you what, I, if you are looking for, like, small individualized care which is what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And that's where I got it. Because you're saying, you know, it wasn't just the counselors on staff that helped me stay there. It was the BHAs. Yeah. You know, they, they would talk me down off of a ledge. Yeah. There was one in particular that she, she really helped me to understand what was going on. And no matter how much I said, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I want to go home. I knew I wasn't fine. She knew I wasn't fine. But she took the time and sat there and talked with me and, and even let me like, you know, go run around the yard just to burn off some of the energy, you know, or like would let me go outside before everybody else to have my own smoke break on my own in the peace. So like, that is the kind of care that I had been searching for in my recovery. And that's the kind of care that I think somebody with a dual diagnosis like this, that's where they thrive in recovery because it's so individualized and because we are so delicate in those first few weeks mm-hmm. that you almost need that hands-on. Like I personally needed that hands-on. I needed somebody to hold me accountable and say, you're fine. You're going to make it through this. And so for me personally, that was just how, what treatment works. I know treatment's for different for everybody else, but I don't know if I, I haven't really met an addict who has been successful in like a, a mass sort of rehab environment where they right. don't get individualized help. I've heard that from a lot of people, but I've, I've also heard from some people that those places where there's a lot of people in the institution, they would say I was just in a different place at that time. And because my ad was in the game, because my attitude was right, I, I did receive help from there. So, I mean, you can look at it from both ways. I myself would prefer a place that's more hands-on and you're not a number and it's more intimate, intimate of a setting. I I would prefer working at a place like that. But um, the other places, while they are huge, and maybe sometimes people feel like a number, as the addict, as the person with substance use disorder, you have to realize too that it is about what's in your head and your heart. And your attitude goes a long, long way with getting right. 
Bessie, and in the same case, I've always been a small, small group kind of person. I mean, I went to a small liberal arts college. That's where I met you. Yeah. I went to a small, you know, grad school. And, and, and I like small. I like not feeling like a number. Mm-hmm. because that was a lot of my problem and, and my past was that I always felt like just a number to people. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how drugs and alcohol can cause the depression. Okay. Instead of it being the other way around, because we talked about how you can have the depression and use it to mask. When people do use to mask, they provide, an, the, the drug or the alcohol provides like an escape, right? From sadness, right. from emptiness. Um, people from that have depression like escaping that. And it provides like a temporary relief though. And people that are using, if you're using right now and you're listening to this, you are creating a bigger cycle of depression when you are constantly using because the use of the alcohol, the use of the drug messes with those happy um, hormones in your brain, the neurotransmitters, that's the big word for them, called dopamine, serotonin and GABA. Those things, those three things actually determine your level of happiness throughout the day, your level level of pleasure throughout the day, the pleasure you get from other things around you. So when you're using the drug to mask the empty feelings, you're actually lowering your serotonin and dopamine level. And when you do that and you're constantly using the drug, the lower they get. You might feel high at first because they'll spike depending on what you're using. If you use a methamphetamine, if you use cocaine, if you use Adderall, things like that, your dopamine and serotonin levels will spike to unnatural, abnormal levels. Huge. So then, Annie, I have a question too. Is it true that whenever you do use an amphetamine like that, that it, it's not just your dopamine and serotonin that spike, but it creates false? What is it? Is it creates false dopamine or is it... It, it's not false. It actually happens. Like they, they skyrocket. Okay? I remember reading an article though about like where it was almost like it, it attaches to the dopamine. Yes, it does. And so does. when you're, when you're coming down or like, even like on, on, uh, say you were on a psychedelic trip, what happens is when you come down and those dopamine depletes, it detaches from the brain. That's when you get like the brain zaps and yes, you know, and then- like reality sort of separating. Right. And then you're low, your depression, the low gets lower when you're coming down. When Boy, that's whatever. It's awful. <laughs> right. And that your brain, then your brain's like, oh God, we need more of that. So it's, it's right. just cycle. So normal, oh God, I don't know the numbers, but let's say like uh, everyday normal levels of dopamine, serotonin, or maybe somewhere in the forties or fifties. Right. Okay. And then you take the drug. That's the upper and it gets up into like hundreds, 200s, 300s, 400s, 500s. And it's like, whoo, I feel so good. And like, nothing can stop me. And then come off of it, you're coming down. And it's like way below, way below that. When I was in active addiction, I was also taking antidepressants that sort of helped to boost the dopamine yes. in my brain. I felt fine as long as I took my antidepressants when I would come down, because it's almost like it would just level back out. Once I didn't take the antidepressant pill, those lows were low, like you were saying, like low, like suicidal thoughts, low. But it's really, really not a good thing if you're using to be also taking those drugs, your, your prescribed drugs for mental health, because it'll cause an, evil, an even bigger chemical imbalance. Your right. brain just- Well, I learned that the hard way. <laughs> yeah. 
when, when you get to that low, low, low point and you keep doing that, the more you use, even though it keeps spiking, the lower you're going to get. And that's where we find this depression that happens in recovery because we're not using that, you know, and then the doctor does want you to start getting on something that kind of evens all that out. So he'll give you an antidepressant. And I've, I've heard this said so many times I say it and I giggle because it just like blows my mind. But as addicts, when you are offered an antidepressant, a lot of times addicts will say, I don't want to put that stuff in my body. <laughs> listen, <laughs> addicts, listen, we're very healthy people. All right. <laughs> I may have just used rainwater from the gutter to fill up my shot, but. Oh my God. It happens. Though. I know. It's funny though. And it, it does. It happens all the time. I mean, there's a really, really good scene in the film, um, Four Good Days with Mila Kunis. Yes. where the doctor says about the Vivitrol shot and she goes, well, is it safe? And yeah. her mom looks at her and goes, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, is it safe? <laughs> you know, that's how we, that's how, how we think. Cause we don't, we are conditioned as, as a people really to yes. not trust the, to not trust the pharmaceuticals or the doctors. Yeah. You know, and we get into these, especially an addict mind, man. Once an addict mind catches on to a conspiracy theory, it doesn't matter if they have gone through treatment and they are the sound mind and body. They will still believe in that conspiracy or a theory. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy pants. I know you're right. <laughs> you're right. I mean, I've, I've said it. I've said it. You know, they wanted to put me on medicine and I said, well, is it, is it going to make me better? Like what's, cause I, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I was coming more from a standpoint of like my mental health. Cause I knew it wasn't sound <laughs> and I knew it wasn't like, what it should be and so trusting that the the medicine they were going to put me on was actually going to make me feel better or not was where I came from well and then you have to think about too that medicine that they put you on isn't isn't an instant gratification and that's where um people with substance use disorder they think well you're giving me this and it doesn't help well you have to give it like two weeks to a month sometimes more because you messed up that chemical balance in your brain so right. if you, if you are an addict, we all know, we want what we want now. We yeah. Want I don't understand why I can't have it now. Need. Right. So why can't I be individually wealthy and like <laughs> not have to work anymore? This is not what I was promised after, after treatment, Annie. And that's where a good counselor comes in because right. the counselor's going to explain to you and help you understand it doesn't happen that quick. Nothing in life that's worthwhile ever happens that quick. You know, I'm 35 years old and I've been having people say that for the last 35 years. It's happening awfully pretty slow, Annie. Yep. <laughs> and it will. I mean, I'm there's kidding. nothing I'm else kidding. that there's nothing else that will give you instant gratification except for things like sex or, you know, eating sugar or well, whatever. I beg to disagree. And I will say that I feel that there are things out there that can give you instant gratification. For example, like, you know, last week we talked about gratitude and I would say like, um, I get gratification from, from helping other people. I know it sounds cheesy and it's like, Oh, look at him. He's a good little boy scout. But (laughs) I do, I get instant gratification off of being able to help people off of being able to, to advocate for, for those. And so there are things in life that give you instant gratification. There's nothing in life that's going to raise your dopamine the way that the drugs do or did. 
adjusting and finding new new rushes in life is is willing how to you find deal with that. New rushes, finding the natural highs. You have to be willing to do it. There's such right. an ambivalence that comes with treatment too. When mm-hmm. you're ambivalent and you're not you're not willing to hear the things that are outside of the box per se. Right. Then you're not you're not gonna get better. You you've got you've got to do things outside of the box. I thought you know, three days sober. Oh, we're good. I'm sober now. I'm completely sober. The drugs are out of my body. Yay. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> but I had to open myself up to understanding that this addiction is going to take weeks to months to almost a year before I'm going to actually feel like a normal person again. Yeah. And even then, it's kind of a crazy statistic, but in research that I've done and seen, depending on how long you have been using a substance or other substances, it can take up to seven years for your brain to actually get back on track chemically. That's again I, saying, depending on when you started, how early you started in life and how often you relapsed. Well, and I feel like I personally, you know, I was, I, I ran for about six years, almost six years with very little sober time in, in those years. And I would say my brain capacity is probably running at about like, 76 76 i still have i still have memory problems i have i have aphasic moments like right now where i can't figure out the words i want to say yeah that's all because i i had a pretty active mind before and during my addiction as well though so i always kept my brain pretty active and i kept my brain pretty active in recovery as well so doing things like writing reading and doing like crosswords and things like that keeping your mind engaged I think helps your brain recover faster it does but you have to realize too and this is just like being devil's advocate I guess you can't make yourself so busy that one day you find yourself so overwhelmed that you're like holy crap I've just been running 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 doing all this stuff and then right 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 and I know you've gone through that (laughs) (laughs) what I've never <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like keeping my brain active is in like 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 not sitting there watching TV for the whole day while in treatment, right? Or you know, but which a lot to, of like, people do, and then they're like, I know? don't feel any different. Well, you didn't do any work either, right? So like I would do, thing. right? And you do, you have it's it's all about honestly. Listen, and I'll say it again and a million times: recovery, drug addiction, recovery, and treatment is the biggest placebo pill you will ever take in your entire life. If you don't believe it's going to work, it's not going to work. You have to believe in the program. You have to believe in yourself and you have to do the hard work. So you have to feel the feelings. Right. You have to feel the feelings. You have to go through it. You cannot go around it. You can't go over it. You have to go through it. It's the only yep. way to get to the other side. Yeah. And um, it's so crazy because we were talking about how addicts will say like, well, is it about drugs, uh, prescription drugs? Um, is it safe? Quote, quote unquote. <laughs> But um, I giggle what's, every what's, time. <laughs> what's crazy to me, though, too, is that if you sit down with an addict, and, and I, in my treatment process, I became what they call a community leader, which is one of the people in the treatment center that's been there, you know, almost up on their 28 days or whatever, and they've shown growth. They're given these titles, community leader. And so if somebody new comes in, they can talk to one of the community leaders like, hey, how do I get this or how do I do that? And they, we can kind of help them along. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the other things is that, like, my counselor um, had people talk to me who who want to leave. And the reason that he did this was because I was one of those people who wanted to leave so badly. 
Like I had it all planned out. I had, you know, the train ticket <laughs> ready to go. And then right. I decided to stay and give it a chance. Um, I'm so, and so glad. He would have me talk to them. And, and it's like, where was I going with this? Yeah. See, brain fog. <laughs> but anyway, so there's community leaders. And so I would talk to these people about like, about they should stay and, and why they should stay, why they should give themselves the chance to, to you know, get better. And one of the points I would bring up with them when I'm talking with them was that I would say, think about what you would be doing right now if you were at home. Yeah. First, like, just think about it. Right now, in this moment, we are sitting outside. It's a gorgeous day. Like, you can actually enjoy how we're gorgeous smoking a cigarette. We're, we're breathing fresh air. Now think about if we were at home, what would you be doing? Because I know I would be on my phone for hours trying to find drugs, then chasing down drugs, then having sex with people I don't want to have sex with because they have drugs, yeah. and going to places I don't want to go because of drugs, and finally, probably by the end of the night, maybe find my own drugs to be able to go back home and do my own drugs. Yep. Like, that's exhausting. Yeah. It is so much easier you- to sit here and enjoy the sunshine and enjoy this like little break that we have in our lives to be sober and maybe become better people than what we were when we, when we entered in there. And even like, if we- you are feeling depression, even if you are feeling the sadness, it's still so much better than to go back to what you were doing. <laughs> I don't know what I was going to say, but we owe it as addicts. We owe it to ourselves to at least give our, our bodies the break for a week or two. But it's but even also, more than that. It's even more than just helping your body recuperate. It's allowing your mind and your brain to recuperate. Right. And also just knowing that you're worth it. And a lot of people don't understand what it means to have self-worth who are in the grasp of active addiction. They feel worthless. And you have to, you know, work with your counselor, work with the techs that are there, the behavioral health techs, whoever's there, like you need right. to talk about how you feel because if you're not talking about how you feel and you think it's like lame or you're being a wuss or whatever, whoever told you whatever, especially if you're a man, men are, are raised, unfortunately, so many generations now that having feelings or showing them or showing emotions or having tears is, is not man. Well, let me tell you something. When you're a real man, you can show your emotions. <laughs> and, well, and that's it's, true. And it's and also that comes down to a societal thing. Attractive. Well, I think that's a shift in society is happening though too. It's becoming a more generational thing where men are not afraid to show their emotions. I've heard of more men about my age group going into treatment and going to rehab and and being able to share and get past their traumas to get better. Mm-hmm. Because our generation is a little bit more or a little bit less defined about gender roles. Well, my generation is very defined in it still. Yes. And so there's still a generation of that is like, you know, that's running. And and unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that except to just encourage people to, if you're having a problem, if you need to talk to somebody, there is help out there. Yeah. I mean, there's so much help. You know, and that makes me think about, like, there's these amazing hotlines you can call. You can call, you know, the Mm -hmm. suicide hotline. Um, They have this thing called crisis text line where you actually can text somebody 
It's 741741. You just text to them. You tell them, hey, I'm feeling this way. There's somebody there to help you. There's somebody to talk to you. You don't right. even have to be on the phone talking. It's texting. Like right. the advances in help out there are amazing. There's so many ways you can go about it. And if you're embarrassed to see someone in person, something like that would be amazing for you. You know, and I, I met a lot of men like that in, in treatment who didn't want to share or didn't want to, you know, open themselves up and unfortunately I felt bad for them because it's like they were going through the motions right and it, it's in the, you want you want these people that you meet you know in such a short time I I really um felt like I got to know a lot of these people and really got to kind of understand them and and and, and learn from them mm-hmm. but it was a shame whenever these guys would come in who just they were of a certain generation. They didn't share their real feelings. They just walked talk, walked, and talked to the motions and always seemed to have a better way of solving a problem than, you know. It's unfortunate. It's, I do come from a generation of many men who know everything. <laughs> toxic masculinity. They had to mansplain rehab to me. And I'm like, I think I got it. No, thank you. Mansplainers. I can't stand it. You know. <laughs> And that's the thing too. I I was okay. So I was a very vocal person in rehab because, well, what else am I going to do? (laughs) Right. I am me. I talk a lot, but I also have no filter and I had no filter for bullshit in rehab because I went through a moment where I said to myself, I'm going to be completely honest with me, with the people around me and with those that I encounter because I feel like being rigorously, rigorous, rigorously, Yes, I feel like rigorously being honest with people and with yourself is one of the the key points in recovery and, and being successful. And working because, through emotions and, you know, the mental health stuff, for sure. Right. Because if you're not, then you're just lying to yourself and you're lying to everybody around you. And I was tired of being known as a liar. Just call people on their bullshit. Whenever somebody wanted to, to give a, a, a way that they did it better... Or that this is what I did to do better. I would just look at them and be like, you're not helping the situation. And they would just look at me and like, you're not giving any advice that is beneficial to this person because A, they either couldn't do what that person had done or that didn't even apply to the situation. It didn't align to their moral compass either sometimes. I hear what you're right. saying. I've seen it. I've seen it happening. And, I've shot it down. Why- <laughs> that's why they don't allow crosstalk. That's why they don't allow crosstalk at, at, at meetings because we're not here to give each other advice. We're right. here to listen to one another, uplift each other, support each and, other. Yes. Oh man, I used to hate it when our people were like, "Oh man, I can't, I just can't believe what you're going through." Like, I don't know what I would do if my son was like that. Blah blah blah. I'm like, you don't need to share that. You're only making it worse. I mean, and like, where like, are you in your life that you have the uh, audacity to say shit like that? <laughs> right. Oh, that's the other thing I can't stand. We're getting a little off topic, but I got to talk about this one. I cannot stand people who think they're better at fucking recovery than anybody else. Oh, oh no. It happens. <laughs> that drives me up a wall, Annie. Well, Listen. and also, even if you want to stay on topic with this, let's talk about how that affects people. If you have mental health disorders, when someone's like all over them, acting like they know more than them and trying to give them advice. Counselors right. don't even give advice. Counselors counsel you. They teach you. Absolutely. We're very fragile. And to come in and say that you should do this, you should do that. I, I used to be a people pleaser. And so if somebody were to do that to me, I would have I would have done this all wrong. Came to the realization that I am here for myself and myself only. 
You know, I have that whole philosophy of being self-centered versus being selfish. I believe that in recovery, when you're in treatment, yes, you, you can be selfish. You need to be selfish because you're there for you and you're alone. But there comes a point when you'll hear people saying um, that we were so self-centered in our drug use. We were self-centered people. We, our self-centeredness is what brought us to re- recovery, but it was our selfishness that brought us there. Yeah. You know, I, I was a selfish person. Everything I did up until the, I went to treatment was a concern about me and what I wanted and what I wanted to do at that moment and did not have any concern for other people around me. And so if you think of yourself, you know, in the center of your world, being self-centered means that you are centered in knowing where you fall in the balance of everything inside your, your, your system, your solar system. Mm-hmm. So I have myself in the center and then I have around me, my family, my friends, my personal relationships, my work relationships, you know, all of these things that I have to keep an equal balance of attention to, to stay in balance and if in center of my life. Right. So it's okay to be self-centered. It, it's perfectly fine to be a self-centered person. Being a selfish person is whenever you go in to situations and you are concerned about your your feelings but you also feel that you are the only one who can can solve you know other people's problems as well mm-hmm. so right. like it's, it's being egotistical it's going in and saying like i'm better at this than everybody else and that even is a, is a diagnosis on its own annie yeah you know <laughs> being a narcissist and going in and thinking that you can you can fix everybody um you know, that's a dual diagnosis right there. That's a substance use disorder and, and narcissism. Narcissism. That at most rehabs, you will find one person like that in the rotation of things every time. I think I had like four or five of them. While I was There's there. always at least one person that just thinks that they know everything about it. And as a counselor, you, you confront them. You say to them, well, if you're so good at recovery, why are you here? Right. I mean, I've, you know? I've asked that question. And... <laughs> I think that's too sometimes where we get into after treatment, we get into the danger of sponsors because I feel that there are a lot of people out there who sponsor people who expect, mm-hmm. expect that their sponsees to follow the same exact path that they did. Yeah. And that's not how it works. It's not healthy. It's not healthy. No, I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, what, let me say this first. If you okay. can't get out of the house, anyone who's listening to go to a meeting, there's Zoom meetings all over the place. Because and for of those COVID. listeners who are wondering why she's saying that, it's because I have been in lockdown <laughs> because I have COVID and I have my vaccination. So don't even start with the rumors out there. <laughs> I have been vaccinated and I still got COVID. So I have been quarantined um, the last 10 days. And maybe I did or did not go to a meeting. I don't know. <laughs> But yes, NA and AA, both their websites, you can find a list of Zoom meetings happening around the world. So there's some that one happening literally every minute yeah. of the day. All right, Annie. I wanted to say something quick about um, okay. natural ways to manage depression. For those of you that are just that, that against um, taking a medication. Although I will say that research shows when you have depression or anxiety, a combination of medication and counseling, even after you're out of rehab, show to be greater, um, more beneficial for you and will help you with those things much more than something natural. But these other things 
are good things too. So number one, establish a, a routine every day, stick to it. Um, something I'm guilty of yesterday, I had my first Saturday off in like forever and I didn't wake up and do my daily routine and I spent half the day depressed and I'm on an antidepressant, <laughs> <laughs> but it happens when depression happens. Well, no, it it's, happens. it's something I think that you're 100%. People, it's just, it's some days you're going to have days and it's okay right. to like take care of yourself. And that was my next thing, like natural ways to take care of this you know, give yourself a day to just regenerate, watch something you like, do some art. Maybe all you can do is open and read something or whatever, but you're allowed to have that sometimes. Like depression is okay hard to not be okay. It is. It is. Um, it's really helpful that you set daily goals for yourself while you're in that routine every day. Some other things that can really help with depression and keep you moving are like volunteering in your community or volunteering in, even in your recovery community, seeing how you can help with meetings. Something else that helps is aromatherapy. There are certain essential oils that can help you feel regenerated and lively, like the citrus scents, sweet orange or lime or lemon. Those are all like really regenerating, happy oils that you can use. Uh, make changes in your diet, try to eat healthier and just get moving, keep moving. So I just want to say, I think all of your points are, are 100% on the money. I know for myself, in, in treatment, they really instilled in us, like, get a regimen, get mm -hmm. a routine. Um, and when I first got to the recovery house, that was the first thing I did was I got a routine set up. And on the days that I tend to, like, sort of be lackadaisical about it and forget to do it, or, yeah, I don't know what I want to do. But, like... Um, the routine has been the biggest thing for me now that I'm back to work too. It's, it's well, once I go back to work after this last quarantine, it'll be, it'll be nice to get back into that routine. Music. Ah, yes. I was going to suggest music. And then I was also going to suggest um, if you're somebody out there who, who, you know, doesn't want to take the, the depressants or does it, or does want to take the pills, but doesn't want to do, you know, whatever you want to do open your mind up to other forms of healing as well. Like I was somebody who was like, Oh, the whole crystal thing is like so dumb, but now <laughs> I've opened my mind up to it. I've opened my mind up to the crystals, to the oils, to the holistic approaches to healing. Like and meditation, think, yoga, yes, meditation. Oh, meditation has been a big one. Meditation, yoga. Um, and I wear my crystal every day. So yep. it's like, I have amethyst. Amethyst is um, mine too. It's mine. It's my birthstone. Um, like, wait, what? Oh no, it's not yeah. mine. Mine's sapphire. But yeah, it's, it's like, wait a second. Like, you're not born in February. I am. I'm an Aquarius. I know. <laughs> um, I it, it makes me feel so good having amethyst. It does. It does. And you know, and it's like it's one of those things where, again, like I said, it's the biggest placebo pill you'll ever take. Yeah. So if you open your mind up to it, and it it can work. It can work yeah, for absolutely. you. Absolutely. Um, I've met so many people in treatment who are like, you know what? I've done the rehabs. I've done the doctors. I've done this. I've done that. Why not try this? You know, why not? Um, and I also suggest too, for those who are getting out of treatment, I definitely recommend an IOP or um, some sort of PHP program. If you, you still, you know, feel like you need that help because it is nice um, for those who, who, who do do it um, after treatment. Uh, they say it does help them with the longevity of their, their sobriety. 
Right. And if you, uh, a lot of people, I'm just going to put this out there, will say to me, I don't want to do IOP. It takes too much time. Well, look at all the time you spent on your addiction. Right. We've all done it. Now, if you use that much time in three days out of your week, it's right. actually going to be more beneficial for you. So it's, you know, it's a, it comes down to your attitude with it too. It Again. really does. And you, you have to, you have to really stick to your plan once you lock out those doors. Cause once you leave treatment, it becomes a thousand times harder to stay sober. Yeah. There's no lying about it. Yeah. Because you're it not becomes... in the structured environment of the rehab anymore. Right. You're not in your bubble there. Right. So look into sober living houses, sober living communities. I mean, there's, tons scattered throughout the, the country and they're so helpful there's so many that are so helpful some of them that are not so do your research make sure you're going to a good place and yeah. for those who do have those dual diagnoses out there which i'm pretty sure honestly in my personal opinion i feel like you can't have one without the other whether yeah. it came the you know whether the chicken came first or the egg came first yeah i think we all end up with a dual diagnosis by the time we we enter our treatment yeah <laughs> um and for those out there who who you know, don't ignore one thing for the other. Um, because I thought that was how I could fix it. If I fix the addiction, everything else will be fine. Right. But the addiction was the cause, you know, it was the symptom of, of it was the symptom, not the cause, so to speak. So you got to fix those. You got to, you got to fix yourself. You got to fix yourself, girl. You got to <laughs> yes, fix yourself. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. It's, I know. I we're laughing and making fun of it, and and and, and being silly. But seriously, mental health is important. Is, it is. It is key to living a better life in general, a more productive and beautiful life. And everyone deserves that. And there is, is help out there. You just have to be open to it. You know, there are people who who are in treatment who will say, "I don't deserve good things." You do. Everybody does. Yeah. People are not bad. Or people are not born bad or good. You know, you something, know, something I and a colleague of mine have often said to clients is there's so many people in the world that just choose to hate for absolutely no reason. They hate sure. because people are different. They just hate. So I can love you without any reason. So anyone that's listening to this, I love you. You deserve good things. And, and I that's agree with you. Genuinely, from my heart, and you need to know love, and love is one of the greatest healers of any of this. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to Diary of a Former Addict. If you would like more information, <laughs> you can follow us at www.diaryofaformeraddict.com. You can also follow the podcast uh, where podcasts are available on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Cast, and others. Awesome. So thank you, Annie, for another wonderful conversation. Thank you. And thank you all for listening and check us out next week. Like I said, don't forget our live broadcast on October 24th. That's 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We will see you then. Have a good night, everybody. Bye-bye.